Good morning. Good morning. We thought we could uh, sit quietly for about 10 minutes, uh, helping ourselves arrive, welcoming ourselves here in any way that you're comfortable with, eyes open or closed, and also welcoming other people who are still coming in. It's a big group today, parking, bustling about, just letting all that flow through your mind in a relaxed way. So let's sit uh, together.
Good morning again. Uh, I'm Rick Hansen. I'm Rick Mendius. This is Romy, who's mission control here. She has some announcements. My name tag is on my jacket, and I feel kind of naked without it. I'm Romy. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for being here. Beautiful morning with Rick and Rick. It's our pleasure to have you today. The first thing I always want to do is thank the volunteers. Thank you. Most of them are still outside working away, but thank you all volunteers. Nan, thank you for being here. Um, It's our pleasure seeing you. I do want to say CE credits, people who are getting continuing education credits right now, um, please don't forget to sign in if you haven't. You should have signed in. You should have a survey. And at the end of the day, you must, must sign out. Maybe, Rick, if you think of it at the end of the day, we'll remind people to sign out so we can give you your certificate. Okay. Thank you. Um, I'm going to skip to lunchtime already because that's what I'm thinking about right now. Um, Hopefully you brought a lunch, but if you forgot, it is not a problem. We have Woodacre Deli across the street. It's a lovely day. We can eat outside in the meadow. There's picnic benches. Uh, We'll set up some tables and chairs outside here, but I'm going to ask you please not to go to the upper retreat area. They're in the middle of a month-long silent retreat. It's very, very quiet. So you're welcome to walk up the road. There's a gratitude hut to the left, but as you go a little bit further, there's a wood gate, and it may even be open, but please do not go past the wood gate. Thank you. And many of you have tea and water, and that's lovely, but we'd love for you to have a cover on it. If you spill accidentally, there's many of us with name tags, and we know what to do to wipe it up very quickly so no one, no one slips. There's another event upstairs, which is a sold-out event as well. So we'll ask you to stay downstairs today, which is okay because we have the filtered water, restrooms, and the bookstore. It's time to turn off your cell phones, everybody. And if you are having a hard time hearing me, we have assisted hearing devices in the back of the room, so please feel free to pick one of those up. This afternoon at 3 p.m., a survey will be popping into your email box at home. If you have a chance in the next couple days to fill out your survey, it's lovely. We look at each and every one, and we do certainly take your comments under advisement. So if you have a chance to do that, that's lovely. We have the Dharma and Yoga program here, and they were here yesterday as well, and last week with T.S., and it's a year-long program six-month program. It's super lovely. We have Juna there that could speak to you about it if you have any questions. Okay, so I think Rick and Rick will introduce each other, which is nice because I don't want to get them confused. Um, Oh, I'm sorry. One more thing. Rick's books and many other things, CDs are outside on display. They're in the bookstore for purchasing, and Rick has a new book coming out. He will speak to you about it. Uh, if you sign up for it early, he'll... Super he'll briefly, you. it's called Resilient. It comes out at the end of March. And you can see a little postcard out there if you're interested. And if you pre-order it, there's some neat bonuses that come with it, including some guided meditations from me. So, end of promo. Okay. 
And to continue that, however, though, um, there's an email sign-up list for Rick. And if you sign up, you'll get his information along with the slides that we're seeing here today. Both Ricks have sign-up sheets. So um, sign up for both, and then you'll get twice as Very briefly, we're going to run through a fair amount of material. We've chosen over the years not to do handouts because then people are looking at their handouts rather than more experientially engaged. These slides are neat, you'll see, I hope. And we're very happy to send you a full-color PDF of the slides, which you can use in any way you like. Pull out parts of it, share with others or not. So you have that. To do that, we need your email address. So we have a very kind of old-school, high-voluntary, high-autonomy method here where you just give us your name and email address, which we'll never share with anybody else, and we'll send you uh, the slides. Right? Meanwhile, uh, unless you say just slides, which is fine, uh, I'll subscribe you to the WiseBrain Bulletin, which comes from the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom, which Rick and I founded about 11 years ago. And um, also my free newsletter that goes out weekly that's a practice newsletter called Just One Thing. You can always unsubscribe from either or both at any time. I don't like getting stuff in my email inbox. I don't, I don't want to receive. So we don't like sending things that people don't want to receive. And if you're already getting those newsletters and you give us your name for the slides, you will not receive two copies of the newsletter because we send only one to a single email address. Is that sufficiently complicated for early in the morning? Bottom line, if you want the slides, give us your name and email address. Please print neatly, and uh, we'll, we take good care of uh, uh, the people who give us their names. That's it. I could not have said it better myself. Thank I've had practice. You. So. Everybody have a lovely day. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Romy. Very briefly, Rick is my dear friend, a neurologist, longtime practitioner, uh, and someone who served me personally enormously when my own father was uh, having some strokes and eventually passing away several years ago. Uh, He's a dear-hearted gentleman, and that word means a lot to me. Thank you. And and Rick Hansen, he probably doesn't need the introduction because he's probably the reason a lot of you are here, which is great. Uh, Good. So many things. I'm, I'm, I, I'll stop there. I, it's really okay. I could take the entire the entire morning discussing the things that you've done. Um, I think the simplest piece is that he has uh, Rick's talent is to make the incomprehensible understandable, <laughs> which uh, which goes back a long way. I've watched him do it for over a decade now. Well, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. And I think ultimately there are some things that are incomprehensible, and we hope to edge out into that territory. (laughs) So, by the way, I'm warm in here. It's a little stuffy and warm. Yeah, maybe a little air. It's definitely plenty of fresh air out there. Okay. So The CO2 is about 2,000 parts per million in here at the moment. That's a lot, I guess. (laughs) So we hope to explore with you uh, in a go-for-it kind of way, underlying experiential factors based on an understanding of what's actually happening in the body, particularly the nervous system and especially the brain. We hope to explore with you underlying factors following a roadmap laid out by the Buddha for steadying the mind 
and concentrating it as a means to the end of liberating insight with many benefits along the way. So that's the fundamental purpose here. Uh, This material is wonderfully fascinating and interesting to us and to, I think, many other people. It's easy to sort of spin out into a lot of intellectualizing about it. We're going to tend to try to steer clear of that. In the back of the slide set, by the way, are a number of books as well as references related to this material. And if you go to, um, I think, uh, this website here, as well as my own website, rickhanson.net, there's a lot of freely offered material that you can access to to learn more. Uh, But our primary hope today is to do experiential practice together. And ending very close to 4.30, that'll be the sweet end of the day, not the bitter end of the day. So I encourage you to uh, stay here till then. And especially in the afternoon, we'll be moving more into experiential practice based on some of the understandings or pointing out instructions uh, we'll cover this morning. Uh, These are our major topics. Uh, One of the things to really appreciate is that much as people can practice mindfulness of the body, most fundamentally, we are body full of mind. And uh, taking that into account in a real way, taking embodiment and embodied existence into into account in a real way is very useful uh, for deep practice. So that's where we're going to go. And if you have no background in meditation, that's okay. This is a good intro workshop. If you're a very advanced practitioner, that's okay, because this is really relevant to, the, to that as well. Okay? So this is kind of the scope today. Right? This will all become clearer, hopefully, and comprehensible, or more so, at least, as we get into these sections. All right. So you ready to go? Logistically, we'll take a break in the morning. We'll have a lunch break around 1231. We'll take a break in the afternoon. If you want to get up uh, at times other than the official breaks, that's fine. Just try not to disturb people around you. Uh, you're welcome to stand, sit, walk quietly in the back of the room, walk, uh, lie on the floor. Uh, if you start to snore and you're on the floor, it's conceivable that someone nearby might gently and respectfully nudge your foot. Right? Knowing that possibility exists tends to prevent snoring. But anyway, uh, all right, you ready to go? Okay, good. Let's have fun. Let's do it. We're, this is a real go-for-it uh, workshop. We're going to go for it. And uh, if you're a little, you know, we won't be able to explain everything. And if you're a little like, whoa, at the end of it all, we've probably done our jobs. All right? Okay. So you here we mu- you, go. Yeah, at the end of the day, you must take care of driving home. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay, good. Okay. Um, so the, the Foundations of Mindfulness was the is our first section. And... This is sort of the introduction to the idea of what it is to meditate. Um, I know personally for myself, it's nice to come back to this slide and these topics because every time I sit down, I need to learn this all over again. Uh, Some of us are easy learners. Some of us, well, you know. Um, The basics of meditation, first off, it's, it's relaxation. It's a sense of withdrawing from the stress of the everyday humdrum world. In order to do that and relax and not do the usual next thing, which is to fall asleep, there's some attention that most meditative practices pay to posture. Uh, Basically, a posture that is comfortable for yourself, 
paying attention to what needs to be taken care of for your body, but that allows you to remain alert. So a sense of centeredness, a sense of balance. Um, third, a third point is that in undertaking the meditation, it's important to have a sense of simple goodwill towards yourself, a sense that uh, this is this is for my benefit as well as the benefit of all beings. And to start with that as a way of centering in the the positive aspects of this existence as a human being. Awareness of your body. Awareness of the body is is important because what that's involved in, in for those of us who uh, do uh, neuroscience and, and neurology, uh, the awareness of the body is actually centered in the brain. So what you are doing is you are evoking the circuits that pay attention to all the different aspects of your body, to the heart center, to the gut feelings. All of those are represented in the brain, and the brain really has no way of, of learning about that stuff without focusing its attention in the body and, and being aware of those in, what are called inter, interoceptive, internal perception sensations. In order to maintain meditation, because the most everybody's experience starting meditation is that you, you want to focus on something like the breath, uh, and it's one breath, two breath. Oh, what is my grocery list for this afternoon? And oh, damn, i got to do my taxes. Uh, you, our, our mind is used to, to basically doing what's called monkey mind, which is ping, 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 ping. You know, bouncing all over the uh, all over the palm trees, looking for coconuts, dates, and bananas, and so focusing on something to steady the attention is a way of developing the mind as a skillful tool, and that's an important concept. So that you know, that the uh, the other concept here is the mind. The mind is a great servant and a terrible master. So the, but the mind is, by virtue of its own effect, able to become a servant to, the, to direct your attention to that which needs to be focused on. And in, in, the context, in, in context of having choos, chosen an object of attention, the next uh, thing is that things will bubble up. 98, 99% of what's going on in your central nervous system at this very moment is not part of your conscious mind. There is an immense amount of electrical activity that is just kind of dealing with all of the associations of the things that I'm saying or the things that, are, that have happened to you today, and it's popping up like a, bub, like a, a bubbling pot on the stove, little, bu- little bubbles of ideas. And in order to maintain that sense of concentration, in order to, to try to attain the, the skillful means of, of meditation, accepting what is passing through your awareness without resisting or chasing it, just allows it to to arise and pass away, which allows you to continue to concentrate and focus. And as you develop this through the the minutes and sometimes the hours of meditation, you can develop a sense of relaxation, of just kind of settling back in and quiet and centered and balanced. So this, this gets kind of the basics of meditation and sort of and kind of important thing for each meditation session that you do throughout your life um, to to kind of kind of run through these things in your mind or develop this kind of uh, 
habit pattern of activity to allow you to, de- to develop this. So, let's try this. I'll re- I will take you through a short meditation um, where we will talk about some of, of these topics and I'll introduce the meditation sections with these phrases here. And then I will talk a little bit after the meditation for what's some of the neurologic basis for, um, for these particular different sessions. So, take up your seat. Take up your stance. Relax yourself into a comfortable, erect position, balancing your spine. Not necessary to move or to do anything. If there's a little bit of discomfort that can be relieved by moving subtly, do so. There's enough suffering in your life, you don't need to add to it while sitting. Take a couple of deep breaths. And with each exhale, relax further into your sense of centered presence. Right here, right now. Come into the breath and be aware of the breath entering, leaving your body and your body breathing. Inhale and exhale. And for this period of meditation, allow yourself to to set an intention. I will be with my breath. I will let go of the stress of the day. I will become focused. Something like that. Choose your own. Just hold that intention for this period of meditation. Set the frame.
having set the frame, having set the intention, relax into that intention, letting go of muscle contraction in the body, letting go of the sense of stress or holding or tightness. And within the frame of intention, and within the relaxation of the body, feel if it's there for you. A sense of caring. Just this action. This body-mind is caring for itself right now. See if you can find that sensation within you to whatever extent it is there. being with that sense of caring allow that sense of caring to expand to include your neighbors in the room the sangha of meditators who are here today Feel the caring expand to all those beings 
who are part of our Sangha beyond this room. to the extent it arises feel the resonance of the caring returning from your neighbors from the sangha and from beings beyond the building allow yourself to whatever extent possible to feel cared about. And in the frame of intention and the relaxation of the body, and in caring for and being cared for, allow a sense of safety to arise. Here is home. This awareness is always with you. Feeling safe is possible in many circumstances.
As you sink deeper into the relaxation and the caring and the safety, perhaps you can get a feel of gratitude and thankfulness. Thankfulness for that energy which gives you life. Thankfulness for the ability to be here at this moment, attempting this process. To the extent possible, allow that sense of gratitude to arise and fill and percolate throughout your body and your mind. This being in a human existence, halfway between heaven and earth, with the right to be here and to experience this, and to be relaxed and aware. And as the final part of this meditation, feel the entire experience. Feel the benefits of this experience and bring it into your entire body. Allow it to seep into your bones. skin, your sinews, your blood vessels, your nerves,
Let it permeate you. Let it fill you up. Let it carry you forward. Let me take a second. There is a nervous system underneath that and inside it and through it and manifesting it. Uh, I think the, the excitement for Rick and I over the decades of our practice is to be alive at a time when things that are poetic or philosophical or spiritual are beginning to have underpinnings of biology and anatomy and physiology and neurotransmitter chemistry and functional MRI stuff. Rick will be talking about that in a minute. But this is some of the neurologic basis of what I led you through. Intention, which is a fundamental nature of, uh, of our brain. We have the intention to reach forward and lean forward in the seat. Every action that you have has an intention to it. Some intentions are frontal lobe mediated, top-down, I will sit on this chair right now. I will memorize you know, the Declaration of Independence, uh, that kind of thing. That's a frontal lobe kind of function. Some intentions are a little less conscious. They're more bottom-up limbic. And setting an intention can involve both of these. The limbic system is the system that relates memory and emotion and sets you up for what's our attitude toward the next experience. And that dance between the frontal lobes and the limbic system is what we use to, in a sense, set whether this experience that I'm about to have is a good, is a good one or, an, or a bad one. Um, it's a little bit of our control mechanism. Not all of our experiences is our, are under our control. But to the extent that you have control over that next moment, it's this dance between frontal lobe and limbic and brainstem that's happening 50 millisecond moment by 50 millisecond moment throughout your existence that, that helps to set the frame for what the brain wants to do. Relaxation. I did a little thing of, of telling you to, with each exhale, to relax. 
There's good neuroanatomy showing that every time you take an in-breath, your sympathetic nervous system revs up a touch. Sympathetic nervous system is fight, flight, fright. Every time you exhale, the parasympathetic system uh, ticks up a little bit. That's the rest and digest. Uh, If you think about about that, the saber-toothed tiger jumps up behind Rick. (gasps) Inhale. You inhale, and um, you take a breath in to either run or hit the saber-toothed tiger on the nose, whichever comes to mind. Um, The saber-toothed tiger runs through the door and heads off up there. We relax. This is available to you. The power to relax the stress of every day is available to you every time you exhale. It's no accident that almost all spiritual traditions in, their, in, the, in the training and meditation focus on the control of the breath. Focus on the balance of the, of the sympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system. If you think about it, that's the only door in to the control of your internal milieu that you have. You can't think yourself into a greater gastric motility. You can't think yourself into higher blood pressure. You can't think yourself into a slower heart rate. You can't think yourself into goosebumps. All of those kinds of things. But I'm controlling my sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system right now because I'm speaking. We have been endowed as an organism with the ability to do this. Uh, in evoking caring, that also, that, that also relaxes, goes to the vagus nerve and the parasympathetic nervous system. Uh, by the way, the, there's a great organization called HeartMath, H-E-A-R-T-M-A-T-H, um, which has a lot of stuff on breath control and, and utility, and I would encourage you to, to look at their, at their website. In caring... We are a social organism. We are a, a species that involved in, uh, evolved in groups of 30 to 200 in the savanna of East Africa. And social mechanisms and the connections within the, uh, within the, organ, within the, the, the group are critical to our survival. Within the Buddhist tradition... Um, there's a, a story, and I will probably mess it up, but I'll give you my best shot. Uh, Ananda asked the Buddha, was, the, was the, the association with appropriate bhikkhus who had uh, great spiritual character important for the holy life, or was, the, or was it more important to focus on your, uh, on your own practice? And the Buddha said, as typical, not so, Ananda. And he said, it's the whole of the holy life. Sangha, the social engagement system, the ability to, to tie us in together as, as a group of beings engaged in a, in a community practice uh, is critical. Uh, for those of you who have meditated before, um, and who med- you know, if you meditate by yourself or you meditate in the room, it's a remarkably different experience. It certainly is for me. Sitting by myself, Monkey mind. Sitting with you, 
It's wonderful. So that social engagement system is key. Um, The inculcation of safety. Um, Feeling safe is is critical. Um, I think the the, one of the insights that I had about this is that uh, the Buddha achieved enlightenment under the Bodhi tree, but the Bodhi tree had his back. It's kind of an interesting thought. Every the entire forces of Mara have to come in front of him. They're not back there because the tree's got him. Safety's key to uh, to I think achieving enlightenment, and it's important to be able to bring that sense of safety, whatever circumstances you're in, uh, to your meditation practice. Positive emotions and the evocation of positive emotions are key to survival. It's not just the dopamine and norepinephrine and opioids. There's good solid literature to show that the length of your telomeres, which are the ends of the chromosomes that determine how long your cells are going to live before they die, the length of your telomeres grow or remain remain longer the more positive emotion you, uh, you inculcate. Um, a positive attitude with life is associated not only with a more pleasant existence now, it's also associated with a longer one. As you look at people who in their 70s and 80s and 90s in their studies on, uh, on uh, uh, monastic nuns and looking at their positive attitudes at age 19 and how they were going forward, the ones who had real positive attitudes at age 19 were a greater proportion of those that survived into their 80s and 90s than, and who had more intact nervous systems and greater functionality in their 80s and 90s than the nuns who were there because my mother made me. You know, or some other similar negative thought. Um, and internalization, which was that last piece about taking things in, which is really something that, that Rick has done a lot of really great uh, stuff and talking about over the years. If this is just a little head trip running around up in here, it's not as useful. If you take it in, what you do is you invoke all of the circuitry of the entire nervous system, both the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system, in such a way that all of these other benefits of relaxation and awareness uh, are made part of the experience. And it changes it from an expi- uh, from just something that just happened to you to something that actually starts to become you. It's good for learning. It's basically multimodal learning, which makes sure that the, that the experience stays with you and not just, and it's not just something that you know, bounces off the, frying, the hot frying pan of your mind. And so taking it in and internalizing it and really savoring it uh, ensures that the positive nature, to the extent that it arises in a meditative practice, that that positive nature becomes you and becomes you moving forward. All right. Thank you. So what I'd like to do now with that as an example that Rick has just walked us through of the plausible, underlying, embodied factors 
that support, steadiness of mind. Uh, on the basis of that, I'd like to uh, present some information that's pretty foundational. Take about 10 minutes or so to do that, then take a break, and then come back and do another experiential practice. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. So, body full of mind. This is your brain. This is a real brain. I remember this experience I had. I was taking a continuing ed workshop. I'm a psychologist. Uh, kind of early on, after I was licensed, and this uh, neurologist, neuropsychologist, walked in literally with a bucket, pulled on a pair of rubber gloves, reached into the bucket, and pulled out a real brain with a lot of drama involved. And it was just kind of stunning to think that our own thought processes and experiences and memories, my own uh, mental processes, were mainly, if not entirely, being produced, constructed and constrained and conditioned by that very uh, unimpressive object that looked like about three pounds of rotten cauliflower. That's the brain. And it's kind of remarkable that the organ I'm going to be talking about in a moment or that we're trying to understand in a moment is doing the understanding of the organ we're trying to talk about. It kind of goes round and round in a circular way. So it doesn't look like much, yet scientists think that the brain itself is arguably the most complex physical object currently known to science. It's got about 1.1 trillion cells, 10% of which roughly 100 billion or so, uh, are neurons. Uh, the other cells, uh, a trillion or so, are important support um, systems. So they do some information processing. But the main action of information processing, which is the basis of our ongoing experiencing, and also the underlying unconscious regulation of the body. The brain is the master regulator of the body. Most of that activity happens uh, through the uh, workings of those 100 billion or so neurons. A typical neuron makes several thousand connections with other neurons. The number varies, but on average it's several thousand. Well, multiply 100 billion times several thousand. That means right now, as you sit here, several hundred trillion little microprocessors inside your head are sparkling away, doing their thing. What, yeah, what Sherrington called the enchanted loom weaving moment to moment to moment the fabric of our own experiencing. And um, in the brain, it's really the world of the very complex, the very quick. A typical neuron is firing five to 50 times a second. Major patterns of synchronized activity amongst millions or more neurons are occurring many, many times a second. Um, And the brain is the world of the very small. For example, those little microprocessors, in other words, synapses, little connections between neurons, are so tiny that you could put several thousand of them side by side in the width of just one of your hairs. That's the brain. So for me, the takeaway from this, which will be a running theme throughout the workshop, kind of in the background, is both a sense of gratitude. Like, whoa, thank you. Thank you, Mother Nature. 600 million years of evolution produced the rotten cauliflower, three pounds of tofu inside the coconut. Um, And gratitude and awe, and also, second, a sense of responsibility. The build-out instructions for this uh, organ were given to us in the moment of conception. I'll spare you the visuals of that. And, um, And who in the world could earn such a gift? We are responsible 
for what we do with it. And as the Buddha taught again and again, and we're operating here inside a, a Buddhist framework, again and again and again, each one of us is individually responsible for our own conduct and our own progress on the path of awakening. So how can we relate to and use and work with and turbocharge uh, this piece of hardware? Well, the underlying idea is that mental activity, hearing, seeing, tasting, touching, smelling, as well as remembering, having emotions, forming plans, etc., entails underlying neural activity. Very briefly, maybe something transcendental gets in there too, just to acknowledge that. Maybe the possibility of something outside the natural frame, such as unconditionality, uh, the unconditioned, as the Buddha taught, or in a more uh, current kind of sense, a sense of the divine, perhaps must be in there. That said, that possibility acknowledged with respect which for me is truly scientific to acknowledge it as a possibility. And personally, I am a transcendentalist. That said, we're going to stay away from philosophy today, kind of above my pay grade, and zero in on what's apparent inside the natural frame, which is that when something is happening in our experience, something must also be happening in the nervous system. Mm -hmm. This is an MRI slide of a meditator uh, really focusing inside that claustrophobic loud tube of an MRI. And the quotation at the top is a recurring description in the early teachings of the Buddha uh, for a sincere and dedicated and admirable practitioner, one who is ardent, enthusiastic and heartfelt, diligent, resolute, and mindful. So while that meditator and others are concentrating, one region in the brain that is engaged is called the cingulate cortex, especially the more frontal or anterior regions of it, because that part of the brain performs a function. It's the part of the brain that's involved in the deliberate top-down regulation of attention. So you're deliberately sustaining attention to the breath, or in this particular case, deliberately sending boundless compassion to all beings. Um, It's sort of like if you're lifting an object this way, you need to work your bicep. Where, on the other hand, if you're pushing an object that way, you work the tricep. In the same way, there are different parts of the brain that do different things. Uh, And this is just one of many, many illustrations of the fact that mental activity, including our conscious experiencing, uh, must involve uh, mainly or entirely, if you're inside the natural frame entirely, underlying neural activity. And those repeated patterns of mental activity leave lasting traces behind. An example of that is given in the saying that's uh, increasingly popular in neuroscience from the work of the Canadian psychologist Donald Hebb, neurons that fire together, wire together. In other words, as Rick said in the, in the sixth uh, factor there of the mindfulness practice, he led us through, uh, learning is possible, cultivation, development, um, healing, and growth. And we're certainly going to be exploring that here with you today. As an illustration of some of the ways in which regular meditative practice leaves lasting physical changes in the brain, 
This is a slide from a groundbreaking study by Sarah Lazar and her colleagues at Harvard about 10 years ago that compared the uh, brains of long-time mindfulness meditators to the brains of people who are matched controls. Uh, And by the way, these were not perfect meditators. Uh, How many of you do something contemplative a minute or more a month? A minute or more a month. It's a low bar. Okay, good. No more personal questions. They weren't perfect meditators, but they were pretty significantly, you know, interested in doing it. I know some of the subjects in the study is, you know. How many friends. of you are perfect meditators? Mm, not me, not me. So you still moving here. <laughs> still moving there. Okay. So very briefly, and this again is just one of many illustrations of the ways in which, as the Buddha taught, the mind takes its shape from what it repeatedly rests upon, for better or worse which must involve uh, the brain taking its shape in a variety of ways in terms of structure and function from what your mind repeatedly rests upon. Uh, Meditation is cool. There's been a lot of research about it, but it's just one of the many ways. Other ways include yoga, personal practice, prayer, gratitude practices, loving-kindness practices, many other ways in which uh, there's good research evidence at this point that um, uh, doing something repeatedly or experiencing something repeatedly leaves lasting physical traces behind. So in this particular case, three regions in the brains of meditators had cortex, the sheet of tissue where a lot of the action is, most of the action is for information processing in the brain. This is a very thin sheet, four to six, four to eight millimeters thick most places. But when you've got synapses, you know, that you can put several thousand side by side in the width of a hair, you can get a lot of information processing power in a cubic millimeter. Well, the brains of the meditators were measurably thicker compared to match controls in the insula part of the brain on the inside of the temporal lobes that, as Rick said earlier, is very involved in interoception, tuning into the internal sensations of the body, as well as gut feelings. And as a bonus, um, as people uh, practice mindfulness meditation or meditation in general and um, uh, in proportion to the thickening of cortex and the insula, people can become more empathic for the emotions of others, more able to tune into the feelings of others as they become more able to tune tune into their own feelings. So that makes sense. Again, neurons that fire together wire together. If people repeatedly tune into themselves, mindfulness of the breath, tracking internal sensations in the body, internal state of being, they work that muscle, and as you stimulate the neural circuitry, the neural substrates of an experience, you strengthen it. Second region, behind the forehead, prefrontal regions that are involved in top-down executive regulation of attention or emotion or action. Uh, There, too, meditators work that muscle, and it gets noticeably thicker. Also, on top of the brain, there was a bit of a bonus benefit here, uh, sensory cortex, somatocentric cortex that's involved in tuning into the body. Okay? Interestingly, also, in the slide in the scatter plot at the bottom, which in which the uh, meditators were the blue circles and the uh, matched controls uh, were the red squares. And by the way, there were more uh, subjects in the study than are given in the slide. 
We go through a normal process, which Rick knows a lot about as a neurologist, in which uh, we tend to lose several thousand, maybe even up to around 10,000 ballpark brain cells a day. They just naturally die. That's offset by several hundred, estimates vary, 700, 1400 or so, new baby neurons being born. There's a normal process of loss of brain tissue, which is loosely associated with normal cognitive decline due to aging. Wisdom may grow, but certain other kinds of things tend to decline. Not Alzheimer's, not dementia, but a normal process of cognitive decline associated with normal processes of what are called, what is called cortical thinning. All right? So in this scatter plot, you can see that the red square non-meditators, uh, if you compare the older non-meditators to the younger non-meditators, as well as the younger meditators, the older non-meditators had cortex, given in millimeters here, that was measurably thinner right, in these three key regions, normal. On the other hand, very interesting, the older blue circle meditators maintained cortical thickness in those three key regions. They used it again and again and again, so they did not lose it. That has a lot of implications for everybody, including an aging population. People sometimes ask, well, gee, you know, does it matter if I start now? Yes, it totally matters. Every time you change for the better, there must be some underlying uh, physical change inside the natural frame. Mental change is evidence of neural change, even if there's not yet some kind of gold standard study for it. When we first got this slide, uh, I was still on it. I'm way off to the right on that scatter plot now. <laughs> In terms of aging, yeah, we I'm presented sort of, this I'm about sort of 11 over, years ago, yeah. first time. Yeah, it was the, ni- the 9th of February was my yeah. 68th yeah. birthday, so I'm like, way over here. On That's right. like, Rick, you too can be a blue circle. Oh, <laughs> just practice. <laughs> okay, so moving through this yeah. through the break. Um, <laughs> Uh, I won't go through every detail here. These are in the slides. You can get the slides and so forth. Um, At this point, there's a lot of evidence for the effects of various kinds of meditative practice on the brain. Sometimes people ask, how about different kinds of practices? There's some evidence for the impacts of different sorts of meditative practice, but they probably mostly have a lot of the, the, the circles of different meditative contemplative practices, including very physical ones, such as yoga, for example, um, they have a common core that leaves lasting change in the brain. So gray matter is uh, reflective of uh, connections uh, between neurons and also their cell bodies. So having increased gray matter is a good thing. Increased gray matter in the insula, the hippocampus, a key part of the brain that is involved with putting things in perspective, calming down the alarm bell of the brain, the amygdala. That's a good thing usually, unless a saber-toothed tiger is really chasing you and then you need that alarm bell. And then also in the prefrontal cortex, there should be no T there, but anyway, um, which is involved in executive regulation, kind of the, if there's a, the brain is like a committee and if there's sort of kind of a chair of the committee, uh, it sort of tends to live in the forehead. Okay, so benefits here. Also reduce cortical thinning with aging. Increased activation of left prefrontal regions for right-handed people. This is reversed for roughly half of all left-handed people, but the point is the same. And the left prefrontal cortex uh, is associated with positive emotion 
and what's called an approach orientation or a promotion or opportunity orientation, which is associated with greater well-being and greater functioning in the world. Also, as uh, uh, I'll say this one, with increased uh, meditative practice, there's more gamma range uh, brainwave activity. Gamma range activity is very fast, 30, 50, 80 times or so a second. And as that rapid synchronization of uh, neural regions increases, so does the capacity to learn from our experiences. That's good. And also so increases is the sense of wholeness or integration uh, in, in ourselves. And then last, as Rick was saying, uh, research is now showing that uh, sustained practice protects telomeres, these little caps at the ends of chromosomes that protect our DNA as they go through their uh, routine process of division and replication as cells divide and new, new cells are formed. So it's a good thing. In other words, meditation is to the brain what uh, aerobic exercise is to the body. A very, very wholesome, fundamentally useful kind of thing. To finish here, uh, this is a slide in which there's a variety of um, examples of how different kinds of meditation, like focused attention, we were doing earlier with Rick, or more open awareness, you can see mantras or loving kindness tend to engage different parts of the brain. But going back to uh, you know one of the most useful things I uh, heard anyone say in college, which is a long time ago for me, um, the similarities are greater than the differences, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of overlapping function here. All right. So what's the takeaway point? Oh, there was one more thing I wanted to mention that Rick uh, pointed out to me earlier today. You could see all these weird kind of ripples, kind of canyons and valleys. That's good because as the cortical sheet ripples, you can have more real estate packed into a brain that doesn't get stuck during childbirth. Uh Uh, And um, so... One of the more recent findings is that as people do meditative practices, broadly defined, contemplative practices, broadly defined, the gyrification, it's called, or the degree of um, rippledness of the brain also tends to increase as well. Finishing here, bottom line it. Knowing a little bit about the hardware and knowing that as you... Uh, stimulate certain kinds of mental activity that draw upon or correlate with underlying physical neural processes. As you do that, as you stimulate those underlying neural processes that underpin wholesome factors of, of, of mind and heart, as you do that, you strengthen those underlying physical processes. That means that we can use the mind to change the brain to change the mind for the better, to benefit ourselves and all other beings. And that's our, our endeavor today. That's, that's our focus today. Or to quote a traditional saying, we know the mind through self-awareness practices, mindfulness practices. We come to know the mind. We be with it. We also need to shape the mind to release what's problematic, what's painful, what's harmful for ourselves and others. 
and shape the mind by cultivating the wholesome, developing ourselves, acquiring uh, wise view, wise intention, uh, deeper and deeper states of being. And ultimately, and this will be our endeavor, and Rick will be talking about this after I take you through the experiential practice after the break we're about to go into, ultimately, the aim is to free the mind altogether, which uh, for many people, including myself, and I think the Buddha too, starts edging into something that's outside the natural frame and ultimately unconditioned and transcendental. This little framework here is a lovely framework. Um, And it tends to operate in a kind of spiral. You know the mind. In that knowing, you're more able to shape the mind. That gives you a momentary freedom. You free the mind, as they say in Tibet, moments of awakening many times a day. Or they'll say sudden awakening, gradual cultivation, sudden awakening. And then as the mind becomes freer, it's more knowable. Our knowing of it deepens, which increases our capacity to shape it in a wonderful upward spiral. So with that in mind, let's really honor embodiment with a break for, let's say, 20 minutes, so it's quarter past. How about coming back at, by that clock, uh, 11.35? Okay, see you then.
Did you? They do the volume, but you unmuted it, and he's controlling from the back of the room. And oh, they should do control. All right, welcome back. Two sort of logistical comments, then we'll keep going. First is that the talks, uh, this is being recorded, and it will be, through the courtesy of Spirit Rock, posted uh, in, hopefully within a week or two, to an organization called Dharma Seed, D-H-A-R-M-A-Seed.org, which I support uh, through contributions, and they're supported by donations. so dharmaseed.org, where teachings are made available to people freely. So if you have any interest in going back through some of this material or pulling out the sections that have to do with the guided meditations, that will be available freely at dharmaseed.org in a week or two. So you can kind of relax about anxiety about missing anything because you can go back to it. Plus, to my second logistical point, in terms of getting the slides... There was a bit of a misunderstanding. It's not that Rick and I have separate email lists or anything like that. So we're you, joined at the hip. Yeah, we're we're Rick and Rick, right? <laughs> uh, Rick squared. But anyway, uh, so if you put your name and email address on either one of those sheets, you'll get the slides. If you put them on both sheets, don't worry, it'll all work out. Uh, and as I've said, uh, if after you get the slides, you don't want any more contact with us, it's really easy to unsubscribe. Okay, so that's clear. Uh, and in terms of the, there being a long line there to give us your name, now it's clear that there are two sheets, so either one can be signed, which will move the line forward twice as quickly. And for those of you who want Dharma credit, there's, as opposed to CE credit, there's a short exam at the end of your life. I'm going to dodge some lightning bolts here, I suppose. (laughs) Okay. So, um, before the break, we explored um, this fundamental idea that uh, we have both a wonderful opportunity as well as inescapable existential individual responsibility for what, as the poet Mary Oliver put it, Uh, What is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? On the other hand, to be able to know the mind, shape the mind, and encourage the freedom of the mind, we need to have a fundamental stance of being for ourselves, being on our own side. Otherwise, we go inert. 
We might be for others, an ally to others, a friend to others. We might have compassion for others. But if we are indifferent to ourselves, if our own inner world, inner experience doesn't matter, we won't do anything. So this is a very foundational, necessary condition for any kind of productive, sustained practice. And uh, it seems so obvious and yet, as a long-time psychotherapist and someone who's been involved in human potential and other settings for a long time, I've actually seen that for many people, this is the necessary first step. They're not actually on their own side that much. They're kind of, and they're not a very good friend to themselves. So part of being on your own side, part of being for yourself, not against others, but for yourself, has a kind of moral, intellectual component where you realize intellectually, oh, I have rights too. Uh, helping myself will help others, put your own oxygen mask on first, all that stuff. So there's, a cert- there's an aspect to this that has to do with understanding. That's great. Additionally, and perhaps more deeply, there's a visceral, sensory, emotional aspect, fundamentally, of compassion for yourself, which is a combination of two things. Compassion is a sensitivity to suffering, including very subtle forms of stress, uneasiness, pressure, longings that that are unfulfilled, as well as more extreme forms of mental or physical anguish. And also with that sensitivity is a movement to do something about it. It's not mere empathy. Compassion wants to help. The compassion is still sincere even if we can't help. We uh, know people perhaps who are uh, dealing with an intractable illness or are living in situations at home or abroad that are, that are awful. We can't do anything about it directly, and yet our heartfelt good wishes for them um, are still very genuine and sincere. In much the same way, we can have compassion for ourselves uh, even about things that we can't do anything about. So the compassion is still sincere. So I want to mention a couple of things about self-compassion and then do an experiential practice with you. So as the Buddha taught, uh, or more exactly, as it is said that the Buddha said 2,500 or so years ago with teachings handed down orally for several centuries before the first surviving written record of the teachings of the Buddha and some of his uh, contemporaries. Uh, As it is said that the Buddha said, so from now on I'll just kind of leave that preamble out and just go, as the Buddha said, if one going down into a river, swollen and swiftly flowing, is carried away by the current, how can one help others across? So we need to take care of ourselves if we're going to be able to sustain taking care of other people. One aspect of that, as I said, is self-compassion, simply the application of compassion to the one being among all others who wears your name tag. Uh, Self-compassion is an object of much research these days. Uh, Friends of mine and teachers, uh, major authorities, uh, um, Kristen Neff and Christopher Germer, have done a lot of work in this area, written books about it, as well as worked together to create a wonderful training called Mindful Self-Compassion. Um, I recommend it. Uh, Some of you may already uh, have done it or even be teaching it. Um, So what this research shows is that self-compassion makes people stronger. It's not uh, wallowing in self-pity in the negative sense of that. 
compassion uh, and self-compassion rather helps people navigate and deal with adversity, recover more rapidly from it, and along the way uh, have a stronger sense of self-worth and more capacity to relate to other people. By the way, is my sound, the mic is going in and out, but it's okay. Okay, great. I think we're okay there. All right. So um, to sustain self-compassion, there are different methods. The one I've developed has three steps based on some research that shows that we kind of warm up our capacities to express caring through experiences of receiving caring. And when I say caring, I mean that very broadly defined. So in the first step of this guided meditation that we'll go into momentarily, as you can kind of see here at the the bottom, I'll start with getting a sense of being cared about in one way or another. And I'll go through five uh, different aspects of being cared about. Uh, Any port in a storm, right? Uh, Whatever is authentic and real for you. Then in the second step... Now that your, your own bucket is a little filled up, shifting into a sense of caring for others, especially compassion for others, marinating in that experience and really coming to know what compassion for others is like, starting with beings that are easy for you to have compassion for, and then having anchored in a very embodied way the attitude, the feelings, the view that's embedded in compassion, then whoop, applying it to yourself. Sometimes other people do this sequence differently. This is one I've found is often one that is good for people. Find your own way, obviously, as you try these things out. Okay? Ready to give it a whirl? Um, As with anything, um, uh, take care of yourself. Uh, Feel free to ignore everything I'm saying. If there's anything about this uh, that becomes overwhelming for you, because by definition... Compassion is grounded in the, or the, the Latin roots of that word are to suffer with. With is calm, pati, passion, or suffering, to suffer with. So self-compassion is bittersweet. There is the bitter with the sweet. There's an awareness of your own strain or burdens or losses or pains or unfulfilled longings. But that's more off to the side. The primary focus is good wishes, is well-wishing, perhaps as a kind of ongoing, arising, and then rippling out sense of warm-heartedness and friendliness toward yourself, uh, including associated qualities such as kindness uh, or a sense of being on your own side in dealing with injustices that have come to you. That's okay to include along with the self-compassion. Okay? Let's begin. And then we'll talk a bit about this. So, to start, just coming into a sense of presence, being here, in your body, in this place, at this time. Knowing that in this guided meditation, as with all other guided meditations, two things are happening. You're 
trying to do something in your own mind. And second, you're seeing what happens. Both are completely normal. So to begin with, gently see if you can open to or encourage in yourself one aspect or another of feeling cared about. By the way, it's natural for other things to arise in the mind, including not feeling so cared about. That's all right. Be aware of that. And then as you can, return your attention to what we're focusing on here, which is helping yourself gently feel increasingly included, seen, appreciated, liked, or loved. Those five aspects of feeling cared about. So being aware of people in your life today or other beings such as a cat or a dog or a spiritual force or being or beings in your life in the past, perhaps groups of friends, whatever it is, bringing to mind facts in which other beings care about you in one way or another. The relationship need not be perfect as long as in one genuine slice of the pie you are included or seen or liked appreciated or loved. So I'll be quiet here for some moments as you sort of help yourself rest your mind increasingly. Take, Take feeling cared about as your primary object of attention in this meditation. You open to and rest increasingly one aspect or another of feeling cared about.
What's it like to feel befriended? Or treated well? Or respected or loved? Let there be a softening inside so there can be a receiving, a letting yourself have experiences of being cared about. And then in the second step of this practice, in which we are trying to gently encourage certain factors in the mind. In the second step, bring to mind beings that you care about, especially one or more beings that you have compassion for. Perhaps a friend in difficulty, perhaps a child in pain, perhaps groups of people that are being or have been mistreated systematically, perhaps non-human beings, and see if you can mobilize and call up an awareness of their suffering. So much suffering in this world. And with a sense of that suffering, also see if you can help a growing sense of compassion 
warm-heartedness for them. Perhaps supported with soft thoughts in your mind, such as, may you not suffer. Or thoughts in the back of your mind, such as something more specific, like, may you recover from this illness. May you be at peace with this pain. May you find a better job. May you find true love. It's okay if things get in the mix that are not narrowly related to compassion itself. Or you might simply experience waves of emotion, maybe visualized as ripples of energy, good wishes, fanning out from you again and again to touch other beings. So here too, I'll be quiet for some moments. As you take compassion as your object of meditation, you might strengthen it with a hand on your heart if you like. Resting in compassion. A sense of, oh, a recognition of suffering. Perhaps also with a lovingness, a supportiveness, maybe a sense of the injustices landing on other people, if that's relevant. Lived by compassion moving through you, rippling out from you, carrying you along. Compassion.
Know what compassion is like as an experience, as a sense in your body, as a viewpoint. Know what compassion is like. And then in the third step, apply compassion to yourself. Being aware of both your suffering, broadly defined, and primarily feelings of good wishes or support or caring, friendliness toward yourself. You can be aware of your stresses, the burdens you carry, simply the ordinary reality of having a mortal body, perhaps particular losses, particular challenges, simply wrangles with other people, irritability, anxiety, hurt, feelings of inadequacy, sadness, whatever the suffering is, an awareness of that. Allowing that to be true, accepting that. And primarily though, mustering, encouraging, unleashing, Waves of good wishes for yourself. Sympathetic, tender concern. A sweetness for yourself. Perhaps with soft thoughts like, may I not suffer? Or something more specific, such as, may I be at peace with this pain? May I not worry so much. May I release this resentment. May I find ways to bear this loss. Or Perhaps simply a wordless abiding in waves of warm-heartedness, sympathetic caring, lovingness, supportiveness for yourself.
There's a knowledge of your suffering and perhaps a feeling of it in a sense off to the side. If you get hijacked by it, in particular, come back to what arises here, what you rest primarily in, in the foreground of awareness, a sense of compassion for yourself as your object of meditation. Seeking to become absorbed in compassion for yourself. In the final minute of this practice, there could be a sense of self-compassion sifting down into you. In effect, you can shift the focus to a feeling of receiving compassion, receiving related things such as uh, a friendliness toward yourself or a, a lovingness, perhaps receiving into yourself an honest and accurate sense of what's been truly unfair or unjust that's happened to you. Or simply a wordless feeling of receiving warmth, tenderness, sifting down into you, becoming a part of you for the next minute or so.
I have a friend and teacher, he's on the Sparrow Rock Teachers Council, Gil Fronstel. And Gil once uh, told me that a meditator should finish a meditation like a runner finishing a race who still goes full speed to the finish line and not just change channels to ordinary minds. So, or as the Buddha put it, guard the sense doors, including the internal sense of the mind. Protect whatever fruits of practice you've cultivated through your sincere efforts. As we move on to the next thing, it's, it's fine to keep feeling compassion for yourself or other qualities. Rick and I thought it might be useful to open it up to a couple people's uh, questions or comments. There are microphones in the back. And um, then uh, Rick will move on to the next piece of this teaching here. So before somebody... Okay, we'll call on people a moment. I I do want to say one thing. Many forms of practice, including often the most profound ones, involve what could be called choiceless awareness, in which we're simply being with the stream of consciousness in an utterly receptive kind of way. That's a profound mode of practice. It's also the case that sometimes it's helpful to deliberately make wise efforts in the mind, including to try to cultivate certain factors or get to know them or become more skillful with them. And so it's not either or. Both are really important. In the frame of this uh, workshop, which is a lot of material in a fairly short amount of time, we're going to do a, fair, a lot of cultivation practices where we're going after very particular Uh, states of being, to get to know them and explore them and learn how to use them. Um, But that's not because we're against utterly choiceless, receptive, open, spacious awareness. All right. So two people? uh, Two people? Great. I see a hand there. Good. Are you willing to go to them? Or they'll bring you the mic. This is really good. So first person. Thank you. Hi. Um... I had a question for um, Rick Mendius. I, um, I, um, it came to me when you were talking at the beginning of the um, conference of trying to approach things with a positive focus. Um, and um, I am a physician, and I did my training in Western medicine. And I've often felt um, one of the things that I say is, people say, oh, you're so negative. And I'm like, well, that's part of my training. You know, when, when someone comes in with a little bit of pain here, the first thing you think about is something that can kill them. You know, and that's a very negative way to approach it. You know, heart attack, dissecting aortic aneurysm. Um, and then you rule those things out, and then you, and hopefully it's some ingestion, and you can send them home with some antacids, you know. And so I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to develop that in my work as well as in my life. And I... Um, and I just wonder if, if either of you have any suggestions about ways to think about things that, are, that enable me to practice medicine, um, but to bring a more positive approach to it. Ooh. <laughs> Probably relevant for more than physicians, too. Yeah. Well, that's, a, that's quite a question to try to honor. Um, I think the compassion practice is actually where I'll start with this, uh, which is one of the major problems for all people in, in uh, caring professions. 
of any and all kinds and to some extent any all arrangements down to people who are taking care of children and uh, people taking care of their aged loved ones is this thing of burnout. Um, and part of that is, as you so you know, aptly pointed out, when you are when you are in a caring profession, it is you know an every twenty minute relentless presentation of the if excuse the word the shit that can go on in life, uh, the suffering that somebody can ensue, and ultimately, since we are uh, incarnated into a biologic body which has a cell by date. Uh, your ultimate futility. Um, and, and, it, and it is relentless. I, you know, I've, been, I've been doing neurology practice for a while. And I, I find that it is sometimes necessary for me to kind of do this sort of compassion uh, thing for myself and find time to generate that peace because um, in order to be able to meet the individual um, who's coming as I enter the exam room and you can take this analogy into your own life in any other way, way you want it as I enter the exam room to meet that to meet that other being with the sense of how can I help and I find that if I go into the if I go into the room with how can I help, it sets me in a compassion frame where I can take what the the other individual has to say, and in that how can I help? I'm it's I'm not going to take this away. I'm not going to. I'm, I'm not going to come in and you know, go bless you and go and sin no more and do all of that kind of stuff and do a miracle. No. How can I help? How can I get you better through your next piece of day? How can I get myself through the, the next piece of day? So it is. It is in that um, to take the time as literally a piece of self compassion that I've woven into, and I finally found the answer to the question. To take to take the time. Um, to walk up to the exam room, the door is closed, patient's on the other side, and to knock on the door, wait for the person to say, come in, it's your office, why do you have to knock? Uh, but to, for, to, for, to, for the other person to invite you into that presence and to treat that as essentially uh, an interaction that shares something of the sacred. And to be invited in to say, how can I help? And I will do what I can. To some extent that helps. Uh, it helps me with the burnout because it gives me that one little piece of, you know, that felt good to, to walk in and sit in the room. Uh, and so it spares me from that. And so I can share that with you. It's my, it's my own indiv- individual practice. And perhaps you guys can find it as something skillful that you can do with your, uh, your sweetheart, your child, your parent, your office mate, your boss, your employee, 
the the dude at the Social Security office, or dudess at the Social Security office. Yeah, all all of these have that possibility of interaction, of just how can I help? How can I? How can we move this forward? Okay, one more person. How about you, right there? Great. Can you keep your hand up? They'll find you with the microphone. Thank you. Thank you. Um, two quick ones. Um, one, I'm wondering how, if and how research on our second brain, our gut, which we know is intimately related to our brain up here, um, you know, at least 95% of our neurons are created in our gut. Um, there's a lot of sort of new research coming out about that and a big focus on gut health now in relation to sort of mental health and mental emotional healing and stuff like that. Um, so I'm wondering if there's any thing about that. And also, I've been listening to this audiobook called um, The Intention Experiment or something, something about, um, uh, looks into research about um, how mind and intention is magnified when we um, are in larger groups and focus it on one thing, how it has a ability to change um, matter, how it has a, the ability to influence a lot of different things, and I was wondering, is that if there's scientific sort of a scientific side of that, or if that's more sort of this mm-hmm. philosophical transcendental type of aspect? I'll take a swing, both of them. So, first off, I I think you meant not so much ninety five percent of our neurons, but of certain neurotransmitter groups like serotonin in particular. Yeah, so. Uh, if somehow I'm thinking of the lyric of a song, the thigh bones connected to the knee bone or <laughs> something like that. And uh, really, even though <clears throat> we're talking here a lot about the brain, the brain is embedded in the nervous system, embedded in the body, embedded in nature and culture currently, and if, if you will, vertically in deep time. So as the Buddha taught, um, this moment-to-moment experiencing and the lasting residues left behind, for better or worse, we're going to focus on the for better side, all of that occurs in a larger framework of dependent origination. Yeah. So that's really fundamentally true. From a practical standpoint, uh, for me, that gives us opportunity at both levels. So, for example, we can intervene in the gut through attending to the microflora there, as you know about the little critters that live inside us, that uh, are, can help us or hurt us, and that then those processes can feed back up into the brain and, more, and, and ultimately into our moment-to-moment experience. On the other hand, we can do things deliberately in our, as it were, our brains that exercise top-down, as it were, regulation that affects the gut. We can deliberately calm and relax. We can think of things that bring us a greater sense of peace and reduce stress-based activity in the viscera, including the GI tract, and so forth. So both of those are really, really useful. And for me, it's kind of about pragmatics and different moments and different times. Different levels of intervention work for different people. And taking the whole into account is really, really useful. Uh, Second point to your larger thing about people practicing together. Again, evidence of mental change inside the natural frame must be evidence of some kind of physical change, even without a study. So if people who practice together notice that, oh yeah, it's easier to meditate in a group, 
or there's some shared sense that's kind of uncanny in a group of people, that's evidence of a kind, right? And then pragmatically, uh, which is, I think, our primary focus, and I believe the Buddha's primary focus as well, he was very interested in what is true. He was more interested in what helps, what works, uh, the causes of suffering and its end. So um, if we notice that being in a group is helpful, that's great, and that's, that's useful. Now, the mechanism of action is the mechanism of action, if you will, uh, of some kind of group meditative phenomenon. Does that occur inside the natural frame so that you don't need supernatural or transcendental factors to account for it? Subtle forms of intuition, reading other people, mirror neurons... Uh, catching a vibe, picking up pheromones, all of which are inside the natural frame, even if they're pretty exotic. Um, that's, that's cool. And maybe as well there could be energy fields, electromagnetic fields, inside the natural frame that science does not yet know about. Uh, routinely I interact with people who are dogmatic uh, uh, science types, and I think, hey, a little humility might be called for. 96% of reality was unknown a generation ago. Uh, it's when a woman astronomer discovered... Currently accepted reality. Yeah, exactly. That's right. <laughs> she discovered dark matter, and then more recently dark energy, and da-da, that's like 96% of everything. Uh, so let's, let's have some kind of humility here. Uh, all that said, for me, it's useful as a way of thinking about it to acknowledge the possibility of, if you will, supernatural factors outside the natural frame. And then for me, that's such as reincarnation or ghosts or clairvoyance of some kind. I'm not arguing for it. I'm just saying this for me as a conceptually useful framework. What's the natural frame? And then maybe uh, what could be outside of it, supernatural, and then distinct from that for me, the ultimate transcendental. So... Uh, the point of all that for me is to not uh, get caught up in the Buddha called a thicket of view, the thicket of views about all this, but to have a kind of fundamental humility and to finish this, um, which will be a segue to what Rick is about to get into, keep bringing it down to your own experience. This moment, this experience, this breath, as the Buddha said, inside this fathom-long body, six feet or so, two meters. Inside this fathom-long body are to be found, which is to say in embodied exist, embodied experiencing, moment to moment, are to be found all of the causes of suffering and all the causes of happiness. And so it's there that we work. Right, okay. okay, good. Thank you. I want to, I want to follow up. On and we're going to keep moving but, along here. Uh, because the, the question, the question uh, inside your, uh, what I heard inside your question, was it is it possible for uh, meditators meditating together to do acts at a distance, uh, act w- act within the frame? Um, and I, I think I'm going to to give a second what Rick just said about you, to stay within the body. If you look at if you look at Buddhist scripture, uh, the Buddha mastered all of the arcane arts, as it is said. He mastered all of the arcane arts and all of the abilities, realized all his past lives, yada, yada, yada. And he basically said at the end of the day, knowing all that does not relieve suffering. Suffering remains. Gaining arcane supernatural powers does not assist you 
in alleviating suffering. That is, to bring it into the Western frame, that is a Faustian bargain. And to quote, and to quote Oppenheimer, uh, at the Trinity site in New Mexico in 1945, on the detonation of the first atomic bomb, I have become death, destroyer of worlds. Quoting from the Bhagavad Gita. Quoting from the Bhagavad Gita. And so I, I, I think it is probably most important you know, for those of us as practitioners to hold the desire to change things in the world and to alleviate suffering, but not to pursue the delusion of self inherent in I'm going to gain power. You know the other, the other, the other, the other mythology, you know, uh, for probably familiar to all of us, is Frodo for all of his desires and to chase and to carry the ring of power without accepting it. Right at the apex of the ability to destroy the ring by throwing it into the volcano, fails, and is rescued by the most despicable of beings along his path, Gollum. So this whole concept of seizing power leads you to failure. Seizing power inculcates self. And that is the source of suffering. Bravo. Okay, (laughs) moving on. So we're going to do a little riff here. Rick's going to do it. And then we're going to have lunch, okay? So we're going to move through this. And in the afternoon, we're going to have a lot of experiential practice that follows a roadmap from the Buddha, a kind of progressive process. All right. I have, to learn. I, have to, I have to reincarnate some humility here for a minute. I get too much of the Zen practitioner with the staff. Hi. Uh, anyway. Sense of urgency. Sense of urgency. Um, concentration and contemplative practice. Um, there's the chant, Om Mani Padme Hum. The jewel of the mind is contained in the heart of the lotus. And the compassion practices, the, the metta practices, are the lotus. The concentration practices are the jewel of the mind. So starting, we'll be doing a lot of concentration things this afternoon. The three pillars of practice, um, sila, samadhi, and panya, virtue, concentration and wisdom are in a sense set up against uh, uh, the suffering, dukkha, non-self, anatta, and uh, anicca, impermanence. There's, there's all kinds of balance. And as you probably are aware, those of who've looked at a lot of Buddhism, there are lists of all kinds of numbers. These, anyway, these three pillars help us to focus on how to establish concentration and how to establish mind. Sila, or virtue, the restraint of what is harmful to oneself and others. It is, as Jack Cornfield used to say on Monday night, it is hard to, it is hard to become enlightened as one is, if one has been out murdering, raping, and pillaging all day. Um, concentration, which we'll be talking about a little more, is the mindfulness, the steadiness of mind, the meditative absorption, the development of the, of the skillful sword of Manjushri to cut through delusion and see things as they are. 
and wisdom, insight, understanding the Four Noble Truths of suffering, its cause, its relief, and the path to relieving it, is to, is to some extent some of the, of the consequence of concentration on virtue and is something that arises spontaneously from insights that one, that one obtains during meditation. So the concentration practices really uh, are talk about a path in which one uncovers the true nature of that which is already present. This is that. That is this. They are as they are. I am as I am. And purifies and transforms the mind and heart. Relieves it from the necessity of chasing after the latest, the latest desire or the latest thought or the latest memory. And, for one, and the joy of that is that for those who begin on this path, which is all of us here, because as the Buddha said about one person who came by and asked a question about enlightenment, then went on his way and the bhikkhu said, is this guy going to get anywhere in this path? And he said, he asked the question, he's lost. He's done for. He's on the path now forever. It may take him ultimate thousands and thousands of reincarnation lives, but he asked the question, too bad for him, he's on the path to enlightenment. <laughs> um, the path is its own, it's a, its own reward. The, uh, Rick was talking a little bit earlier about the circular nature of you, know, you, you do a process and then it comes back to you and rewards you and you move forward. And ultimately culminates in enlightenment and complete freedom from suffering. Nibbana. We're going to focus on meditative depth, the importance of concentration. Partially because that's the thing that uh, certainly I did, and maybe many of you did, find the hardest to find the hardest to do. Um, the the concentration practices, the really de- in depth focus, was underemphasized. We think as things came to the as Buddhism came to the United States. But strong concentration, the ability to really focus your mind, the, really be, to, the ability to be a really adept yogi, um, was recommended strongly by the Buddha and the traditional teachers, and it strengthens your will, purifies the mind. The Noble Eightfold Path uh, includes wise concentration, and that consists of the four uh, ordinary jhanas, uh, which are profound steps of meditative absorption that are available to to people who exercise uh, a great deal of concentrative practice. We're not going to be teaching the jhanas. There's some beautiful teachers affiliated with Spirit Rock and with other centers in the Bay Area and the United States who are incredibly skillful at doing that. But we're going to be talking a little bit how to nourish the brain states to support the five mental factors that support uh, jhana states. Uh, Akarya Dhammapala, concentration is the proximate cause of wisdom. Wisdom arises from a practice of concentration and focus and seeing clearly. By the way, one of the areas that lights up and, uh, incre- and increases cortical uh, gyrification and meditate and, and thickness of cortex is a part of the brain in, in the back of the right parietal area that controls visual perception. And pe- people who are meditators are more adept 
at seeing things quickly and clearly, partially because of this inner practice of seeing through to what is. Without concentration, one cannot even secure one's own welfare, much less the lofty goal of providing for the welfare of others. You're not going to be able to get across the river. We go to our previous slide. This slide is a quote from one of the suttas, the Buddha talking about concentration. Just a detail to me. So we're going to listen. Rick's going to read through this, and it's just kind of cool to me to read this traditional language and think of it as an operating manual and roadmap, and to really relate to the language in a very psychological way. There's nothing metaphysical or mystical up here. Excuse me. And what, friends, is right concentration? Here, quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, a person enters upon and abides in the first jhana, which is accompanied by applied and sustained thought with rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. With the stilling of applied and sustained thought, the person enters upon and abides in the second jhana, which has self-confidence and singleness of mind without applied and sustained thought, with rapture and pleasure born of concentration. With the fading away as well of rapture, the person abides in equanimity, and mindful and fully aware, still feeling pleasure with the body, enters upon and abides in the third jhana, on account of which noble ones announce he or she has a pleasant abiding who has equanimity and is mindful. With the abandoning of pleasure and pain, and with the previous disappearance of joy and grief, he or she enters upon and abides in the fourth jhana, which has neither pain nor pleasure, and purity of mindfulness due to equanimity. This is called right concentration. Now there's a workout for you. Those jhana factors, the five... Applied attention, bringing attention to bear on the subject. Sustained attention, staying with the target, despite all of the mental distractions arising in the mind. With applied and sustained attention, a sense of happiness, contentment, tranquility, joy arises. With further involvement in the target of attention, rapture, an interest in the target, a sense of bliss, a sort of embodied electrical charge in a sense. And finally, singleness, the unification of awareness, the sense that all of a sudden everything in your life, your, uh, your, your body awareness, your smell, your auditory awareness, your visual awareness, your memory, your experiences, all of the internal sensations of the body are just one big solid single percept. Whoom. 
those are the factors that are involved in, in jhana, which is part of the whole concentrated practice. And, and these are factors we can cultivate in our daily practice or any kind of regular practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if we don't fall all the way into the deepest end of the swimming pool, we can work these muscles in everyday life. And later this afternoon, we'll be exploring all five of them. And so the, the, this is sort of framed for us in, in, under the concept of cultivating vipassana, cultivating mindfulness and insight. And insight, seeing through to, to the, truly to the depth of things as they are, is the ultimate aim. Not being deluded by somatic sensations, by cultural frame, by prior experience, by memory, uh, by desires or wishes or attainments or ambition. Insight to how things are. And that insight can be nourished and can be allowed to spontaneously arise by a stable, quiet, collected and concentrated state of this individual brain. So seeing through to things as they are, liberating insight and perhaps even the attainment of Nibbana is the fruit of virtue and wisdom and contemplative practice and concentration. Even if the ripe apple falls ultimately by grace, its ripening depended upon the watering, feeding, protecting, and shaping of its tree. Penetrative insights, Shantideva. Penetrative insight joined with calm abiding utterly eradicates afflicted states. Calm abiding is a synonym for concentration. Right. This is... This is, this is the path to the alleviation of suffering. And finally from the Buddha, this spiritual life does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit, or the attainment of moral discipline for its benefit or the attainment of concentration for its benefit, or knowledge and vision for its benefit. But it is this unshakable liberation of mind that is the goal of the spiritual life, its heartwood and its end. The mind being free to rest upon what it, what it needs to look at at that moment to see things as they are. That's, actually I'll just rewind it. So that's a good place to end here as we move into lunch. To appreciate that, we're, we're going to go after uh, factors of steadiness of mind, uh, concentration, which are neat in their own regard, often blissful and joyful in their own nature. And ultimately, as Rick said earlier in response to his question, it's important to not uh, kind of get stuck there uh, as a teacher of mine once said to me a long time ago, don't get attached to the bliss. Use it, enjoy it, without it becoming another attachment. And as the Buddha taught here, ultimately, full awakening is the aim. Uh, and progression in, toward that end. Uh, if that progression is only the uncovering of the awakening that was already deep down inside. So... How about we have lunch? 
right? Would you come back in an hour, please? One hour for lunch. Uh, the detail, there's a deli and Whitaker across the street. Be careful when you go. You can bring food back here. Please return at 20 to 2. 20 to 2, Rick and I are happy to chat with people at the beginning and the end of the lunch break. We'll start on time. May you enjoy the heartwood of this life. See you soon.